Well, last week, Randy finished up uh, 1 Peter. So we're going to take our first look at 2 Peter today, um, mostly because that's the order in which they come, 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. But before we do that, I felt like I wanted to uh, just briefly address or make a few comments about the revival that is taking place at Asbury University in Kentucky. Anybody heard of this? Anybody not heard of this? Yeah, this this has kind of become a big thing. Maybe you've seen some news stories or uh, any number of social media posts over the last week or so. Um, It started on February 8th. Uh, There was a small group of students that gathered together in the church for a a, a service of some sort. I think it was mid-morning, 10 or 11 o'clock. Um, there was a little talk, a little sermonette about um, love in action. Not in action, one word, but love in action. Uh, and then there was a time of prayer. And sometime during this time of prayer, uh, the story goes that one of the young men stood up and felt the need to confess his sins, to confess his transgressions to the group, which prompted more prayer. Uh, and then somebody started singing a song, and so the group sang along with the song. And, and then there was more confession, and after some time had passed, more people started showing up. More students were coming. More musicians came in to, to lead a time of worship, and students continued to come in and join in. Uh, that was February 8th, and, and, and the service really has not stopped since then. And I just read the other day that there are now people traveling from all over the world coming to join in whatever is going on there, join in the experience. And there are recent accounts that are saying it has spread to other campuses even. Now, by most accounts, this was not a planned or coordinated event in any way. It's a genuine moving of the Spirit. But other accounts suggest that early into this, whatever was going on, the administration sent out an email to the student body encouraging encouraging them to come down and join in. So maybe it wasn't quite as organic as it first appeared. It's hard to know for sure. Um, But what is true is that there are no uh, flashy stage props. Um, There's no mood lighting. There's no hyper-emotive Hillsong or Bethel music being played. In fact, if you've listened to, there are any number of little uh, video clips that are coming from the service. If you've listened to any of those, you'll hear several of the songs that we sing that people are singing um, at this service. So it it has the appearance of being a a relatively calm and manipulation-free, spiritually-based event. And it may well be. We also know that Asbury University prides itself on having played a role in starting or encouraging no fewer than eight other revivals throughout history. It's it's kind of baked into their DNA, they suggest. Now, being the cynic that I am, let me preface this, by being the cynic that I am, there's a lot here for us to consider, especially as we're trying to make sense of it from afar. We're dependent on other people's accounts. But the question is, what do, we, what do we make of this? What should our attitude be towards this? Uh, and I can tell you that my attitude is, I am cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic. Scripture says that in the last days, God is going to pour out his spirit on all the people. And that your, your sons and daughters will prophesy. But we're also told that we ought to test the spirits. Because they're not all from the Lord. 
So as this revival uh, gives us, I think, a, a, as it continues to, to evolve, it really gives us a remarkable, I think, case study uh, to consider as we move into Second Peter. Um, the Spirit of the Lord can and does move us into revival. More often than not, it is a personal revival rather than a corporate revival, but that's not always the case. I mean, the day of Pentecost, for example. But I think that was one of the exceptions that proves the rule. More often than not, we are called to, to experience revival personally. And Peter warns us. We'll see this throughout 1 Peter. We'll see it again throughout 2 Peter. Peter warns us that we are to be on the lookout for false teachers to guard against their influence. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that's what's happening here. I can't tell you exactly what it is we're dealing with here. It, it may well be genuine revival fueled by the Holy Spirit, or it could be some cleverly devised facsimile fueled by some other spirit. Or we, we know that the devil still prowls around like a lion. He may be trying to find ways to manipulate and distort this genuine movement. We pray that's not the case. But we will eventually know by the fruit of this event... And so I think we should all continue to pray for all of those involved, that they may experience real personal revival. You know, the uh, interesting thing is about all this, even if, worst case scenario, this is all fake, God can still do whatever God wants to do in the middle of this. People can still be moved to righteousness. They still can be called to salvation. So we pray for those involved that they may experience real personal revival and that it leads to good Christian conduct. That should be the desired outcome for those involved. So we're going to start, before we jump into 2 Peter, I just, I, I'm going to say a word of prayer uh, for all of those involved. Um, it it's kind of amazes me a little bit that people are traveling from all over the world to come experience this because God only works in this church in Kentucky, apparently. You know, so that, that's the cynic in me that, that I struggle with this just a little bit. Personal revival can happen wherever we happen to be. Um, so that's what we're going to pray for is real revival. And, and if, if there is an element that needs to spread to other campuses, let's pray that that happens too. Um, and that we may see good fruit that comes out of this. Uh, so pray with me as we seek truth and wisdom from this. Lord, I think we would all admit that we are excited, we are encouraged by the possibility here. Uh, We know that the Lord, uh, that you, that your spirit moves in mighty and miraculous ways, and we pray that that's what this is. But Lord, we also know that there are many enemies to the faith who will seek to distort and lead away, and and that's why these New Testament letters especially are, are, are telling us over and over and over again to test the spirits to be on the lookout for false teachers. So, Lord, while we pray wholeheartedly that this is a a genuine moving of the Spirit, we pray for protection for those who are involved, that they would not be uh, distracted or or moved away from what they know to be truth. Uh, Lord, that there are uh, leaders who will step up into this situation and continue to guide and lead towards truth. Uh, Lord, that they'll be on the lookout for false teachers who may come in and try to, to move people away from what what may be a real outbreak of the Spirit here. Uh, and, Lord, more than that, we pray for the uh, extended outcome of this, that those who are touched, those who are being impacted, will go on to become real leaders of the faith, that they will, uh, their lives will reflect good Christian conduct, that there will be lights in the darkness. 
Lord, we pray that as this spreads throughout this, uh, this town, um, through other campuses, um, that regardless of the circumstances, that the Spirit can change hearts. Lord, we ask for people to listen to the, the Spirit of the Lord and not to whatever false spirits may be trying to sneak in unaware, and that this can be a real calling of the faithful, uh, especially in this generation where there's so much revival that needs to happen on college campuses. Lord, we, we pray for your spirit to move in the middle of all this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So was that too cynical? That's too bad because that's the way I feel about it. So, um, Good. Well, we're starting Second Peter, uh, and you know we always... We always like to uh, start with a little background info before we jump into a new book. And it's just helpful for us, I think, to try to understand the purposes, the intent of the letter, make, maybe help to make some of the issues a little clearer for us. Um, maybe we can figure out what's going on at the church at that time that prompted this letter. That's not always the case. Um, but this just gives us a good platform uh, for information before we go charging in. So there are some interesting tidbits about Second Peter, I think, we need to look at before we jump in. Uh, and the first is, we don't know for sure when it was written. Uh, like a lot of the New Testament books, it, it, we can get it down to a pretty narrow time frame, but we don't know exactly for sure, um, largely because as they wrote these letters, they didn't date them on the top. That would make it really, really easy. Uh, there's no copyright date on the spine, you know, when you open, it's, it's just not there. There's nothing in this letter to tie it to any specific time frame. There's no mention of contemporary Roman leaders or historical events. Um, what we do know for sure is that Peter probably wrote this while he was alive. And we have some idea of when he died, so that helps narrow it just a little bit. Um, we know that this is not Peter's first letter. Uh, this was likely written after 1 Peter. But we can't even be sure that 1 Peter was his first letter. He probably wrote several other letters. We just don't have them. But it's entirely likely he wrote other letters. So piecing together a few clues and some inferences and some timelines, we think we can kind of narrow this down to 64 to 67 A.D., um, well, then the next question becomes, because some argue whether or not it was Peter who actually wrote this letter. The style, they suggest, is different from the style of 1 Peter. And to confuse the issue even further, there were a number of what came to be considered, but a number of fake gospels circulating at about this time, claiming to have been written by Peter. The most famous is called the Gospel of Peter. In fact, it turns out that fake gospel writing was kind of a cottage industry in the early church. There's all kinds of books being written by purportedly well-known Christian leaders, and they, they got some wide dissemination. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, perhaps you've heard of. Uh, gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter. But over time, as people were reading these other Gospels, uh, it became pretty clear that a lot of what was written in these fake Gospels was really quite contradictory to the more well-established Gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the early church leaders decided pretty early on that these were forgeries. These are not real. They're not included in the canon of Scripture. That's why you don't find them in your Bibles. So in part because of all these other fake Peter Gospels, uh, that, that has cast some doubt about the authorship of Second Peter. Now, without going into a lot of details as to why, we believe that Second Peter was written by Peter. Uh, one reason being is because it starts off by saying, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. But so did some of the other fake gospels. But we do see that the message and the themes of this letter 
are scripturally consistent with the rest of Scripture, consistent with First Peter. Uh, and so we think it makes perfect sense that this is a letter written by Peter. In fact, Second Peter kind of builds on uh, or reinforces a lot of the themes that were established in First Peter. And those who argue that the writing style is different in Second Peter versus versus First, they tend to overlook the fact that Peter didn't use a scribe with this letter, as far as we can tell. This is Peter's own hand. The first one, he had somebody kind of writing it down for him. So there could have been stylistic differences due to that. But we also know that when we write letters, the, the tone uh, of the letter changes depending on who we're writing to and what we're writing about. So if I'm writing a letter to a potential employer, um, my letter is going to be quite a bit different from the letter I would write to Aunt Gertrude thanking her for the hand-knitted winter mittens. Those are going to be two very different letters. I hope those would be two very different letters. So perhaps the themes required a different style. And we do know, we'll see this in Second Peter, that Peter has kind of a sense of urgency as he writes this, because he says he knows his time is short. He doesn't have much time left on this earth. So there is a sense of urgency as he writes this letter. So as far as we're concerned, there's just not enough evidence, not enough good evidence to prove that this is anything different than what it purports to be, which is a letter written by Peter. One of the other arguments, one of the other doubts about Peter's authorship has to do with the surprising number of similarities to the book of Jude, which is where we're going to go after Second Peter. Um, it's pretty amazing, really, the number of similarities between Second Peter and Jude. We'll talk about that more when we get there. And so some have suggested that, that Peter just copied Jude, or that Jude copied Peter, or maybe both of them copied from some third letter that we don't know about. Now, that's not really a conclusive argument either to cast doubt on authorship. I mean, if you think about it, Peter and Jude were contemporaries. They were alive at the same time. They were ministering to the church. It would not be unusual for one or the other of them to know about, be familiar with the ministry of the other one. It's possible that one of them, rather than borrow or steal from the other, uh, just sought to reinforce the same teaching, because that's truth. But the fact that they share similar teaching, rather than being a negative, really serves to reinforce the importance of what it is they were sharing. It was so important, they both felt the need to write it to their audiences. They both knew that we are not that smart. We need to hear something multiple times before we really get it. So the themes, the ideas were important enough for them both to discuss. Now, Peter likely wrote this second letter within one to three years of his first letter. And as we saw repeatedly through 1 Peter, a major theme of that book was the idea of salvation and suffering go hand in hand. With Jesus, the suffering servant, being a prime example. And we know now from 1 Peter that by committing to a life and a lifestyle of Jesus following we should expect to be persecuted to some degree. We should expect to suffer. We should not consider that as something strange. Rather, we are called to live according to a certain code of conduct in spite of suffering and persecution. 
So between the time of the first and second letters, Peter's focus hasn't really changed dramatically. Uh, We're still called to live lives set apart to holiness. He reminds us that we can't do this by our own efforts, but rather we can do this through the transforming grace offered by Jesus Christ. That's what allows us to persevere and endure. That also equips us to recognize and to stand against false teachers and false teaching. It's kind of the big idea of First Peter, but of course, or Second Peter rather, but of course there's a lot more detailed stuff that we can look at. So let's start with the uh, first couple of verses. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Kind of a standard New Testament introduction here. We know who wrote it. Uh, Well, now we do. Uh, We know who wrote it. There's some idea as to the audience, although it's not written to a specific church uh, located wherever it happens to be. It is written to all those who share the faith. It's written to the church in general. But the first thing I want to point out is the name. There are, there are some translations that say Simon Peter, um, but there are a couple of translations, including ESV, that translate it as Simeon Peter. Now, it's not uncommon to find double names used in the ancient Near East. What was often the case was the, the regardless of the ethnicity of the person, they would use their traditional given name first in conjunction with their Greek name because Greek was kind of the, the major language at the time. And we're not unfamiliar with Simon Peter, right? Simeon is the Hebrew name. Peter is the Greek name. But some translations use Simeon um, while others do not, and Most commentators make no more of an issue about this than that. It's just a a translation choice. It's a a stylistic choice. This is a, Simeon might be a closer translation to what was intended. A few comments, um, those that even commented on it, suggested that using a Hebrew and a Greek name together might make this letter more appealing. It might make it more accepted by both Hebrews and Greeks, because we've got both names represented here. Simeon was, of course, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was more appealing to Jewish converts as well as to Gentiles. And a week or 10 days ago, Al and I were meeting, and he suggested a possible other scenario that I hadn't thought of, which, of course, is not unusual. But I did find it kind of interesting, so I'm just going to mention it briefly. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... He, Simeon, took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So this is kind of interesting. We have here Simeon, a a devout Jew, but who's listening to the Spirit. He's being guided by 
the Holy Spirit, and he goes to the temple. Jesus comes in, and he recognizes him immediately. And then he makes this public pronouncement about who this child was in the middle of this Jewish temple. Simeon pronounced that Jesus was, the, in essence, the vehicle for salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, who weren't even really allowed into the temple at that time. And he's also this, this vehicle for glory to Israel. So Simeon is pointing towards a shared faith for both Jew and Gentile through the person of Jesus Christ. So here in Second Peter, he identifies himself as both a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle means messenger. He's sent to tell a message. He's delivering a message to both Hebrews and Gentiles, Simeon and Peter, to anyone who shares the faith. And that faith, he tells us, is derived from the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's an interesting phrase we're going to look at in just a minute. But by using the term servant, Peter's saying we have this faith of equal standing through Jesus Christ. We're all saved by grace. But he's making it clear that whatever authority he has as an apostle comes from Christ. He's a slave to Christ. His faith is no different from ours. We share this common faith, but Peter's been appointed as a messenger. He was chosen, handpicked by Jesus for this task, to deliver a message to all who believe, whether they're Hebrew or Gentile. And by using a very Hebrew name, along with a very Greek name, he again links Jews and Gentiles together by faith just as Simeon did in the temple. Now, it's also important here, this phrase of um, Peter refers to the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Other translations treat this just a little bit differently. Some say our God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, or of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. it's, It's a minimal difference, but it's a significant difference. Both the NIV and the ESV believe it is correctly translated as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the significance is that this is one of the few verses in the New Testament that directly link God to Jesus in a Trinitarian fashion. Our God and Savior refers to the same person. The others read as though it could be two different people they're talking about. But our God and Savior establishes this direct link between the two. Now, we know there are a lot of other allusions and references to the Trinity throughout the Bible. We saw several of them in Revelation. But this is direct. So perhaps, just as Simeon publicly declared Jesus to be the Messiah in the temple, perhaps here Simeon Peter is publicly declaring Jesus to be God. Maybe that's part of the message that he's bringing. He's the God of both Jews and Gentiles. Maybe that helps explain the use of Simeon. Or maybe not. Maybe we're just making this stuff up and find it kind of interesting. Don't oh, don't swear by that. That's just an interesting thing for us to think about. The focus here is on the shared faith that is delivered through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the big idea. Well, then we get to the kind of the, the standard part of the greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's kind of a standard greeting throughout a lot of the New Testament letters. But we'll see that knowledge, Peter's use of knowledge here, becomes kind of an important theme in this letter. 
And when Peter uses knowledge, what he generally means is not just having access to facts. What he means is the understanding or the experience of those facts. It's knowing that we know. Understanding how knowledge should impact how we live. You know, I've talked about this before because it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. But we like to say that knowledge is power. But knowledge is only power if we allow it to influence our decisions. Otherwise, it's just useless facts. If we know that standing here and shooting an arrow straight up into the sky may not be the best idea, but we do it anyway, then that knowledge is useless, or we're just idiots, or both. So knowing God's standard for our conduct, for example, knowing how we are to live lives, and then choosing not to follow those standards makes our knowledge of them meaningless. Knowing what it takes to live with good Christian conduct does not guarantee that we will have good Christian conduct. But if our knowledge of God's standards convicts us of sin and leads us to repentance and leads us to a change in behavior, well, then that knowledge has power. That's what Peter has in mind here. It's that kind of knowledge. So the blessing of grace and peace being multiplied to us comes in the context of, it's attached to, it's dependent on the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord and how we apply it. See the connection? Grace and peace will be multiplied to us insofar as we're striving to be faithful followers of Christ. Allowing the knowledge of God's word to influence us leads to grace and peace being multiplied. Those are necessarily linked. We tend to want to detach those ideas. Most Americans, I think, would say, we want God's blessing. But we kind of want it divorced or detached from the necessary faithful living that leads to the blessing. We think God should just bless us because we're pretty awesome. Not because we're faithful, not because we're obedient. That's harder. That requires effort. But that's not the formula that Peter points out here. He's writing to those who share the faith. So he's assuming at this point a certain level of knowledge about Jesus. He's assuming a commitment to live according to that knowledge. That's when the blessing, and the, that's when the blessing of grace and peace comes in. So that's the introduction to the letter. There's a surprising amount of stuff there. And then Peter gets, begins to move into more of the body of the letter. He writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So what we see here now, Peter makes this transition from the introduction into he's beginning to, to build his argument now. He's laying a foundation for this longer section of argumentation, which we'll see next week. But I'll give you a hint. The next verse starts like this. For this very reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith. So what we're getting in these next couple of these previous verses are the stuff before that. The reasons for that. And as we can see, Peter will call us to make every effort to supplement our faith with a whole bunch of other stuff. But he calls us to do this first. These two verses end up being kind of the the legs of the stool that help support the argument that is to come, the call to action. And he packs a lot of stuff in these two verses. So first here, you can see we've highlighted some, I mean, these are some pretty amazing things for the believer, right? We're going to get glory and excellence and, and precious and very great promises and, and partakers of his divine nature. As a consequence of our faith, we're in line to receive some pretty great stuff. It's okay to be a little bit excited about that. In fact, we can get kind of puffed up about all these things that we are and start thinking we're, we're kind of holier and more excellent than everybody else. But we need to pay attention to the context here, the process that is involved in this. Because first, it starts off with, his divine power has granted to us. His divine power has extended to us. It's provided these things for us. We did not manufacture any of this on our own. We didn't, you know, figure it out. It was a gift. And what did we receive? Everything that pertains to life and godliness. If we are called to live a life of good Christian conduct, it's because Jesus has given us the ability to do it. So we can't claim to be holier than pretty much anyone. Whatever holiness we have comes from him. It was granted to us. And even, even then it says it has come through knowledge. It's come through the knowledge. There's that word again, the knowledge of him who called us, who died for us, the knowledge of him who, who offered us salvation, the one who has the divine power to begin with before it gets extended to us. You know the old saying, the more wisdom a man possesses, the more he realizes how little he actually knows? Well, it turns out that's true with our relationship for Jesus also. The more we know, the more knowledge we gain about Jesus, the more we learn about and, and understand who Jesus is, the more knowledge we have about his glory and his excellence, the more we appreciate that he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness because none of it comes from us. Whatever glory, whatever excellence, whatever we have comes from him. Now, the word that Peter uses for glory here, in the popular culture at the time, the word meant something like fame or reputation, which I guess could apply to Jesus. He had a certain fame and reputation as he traveled around. But when it's used in the New Testament, especially when it's used in relation to Christ, it really refers to something bigger like splendor and majesty as of a divine being. It's like fame and reputation, but on steroids. Fame and reputation of God. So Christ, who lived this sinless and perfect life, and yet who was still killed and placed in a tomb, who rose from the dead on the third day, his splendor and his majesty, the glory that resulted in proving he was God, the glory that was on display at the transfiguration, which Peter witnessed, that glory 
Jesus shares with us. He allows us to join into that glory just by nature of accepting his gift of salvation, committing our lives to be like him. We, we, we are allowed to bask in, to, to share in the glow, the glory of his holiness. I mean, that's pretty remarkable when you consider how far from holy we actually are. And the word excellence generally refers to character, as in outstanding, above reproach in our moral and ethical character. He calls us to join in his excellent character. We get to be identified with his good name. Now, I know most of you reasonably well, and I certainly know me. And while I try to maintain a fairly high level of moral and ethical character, I am not above reproach. I fail. I sin. And then before you all start looking at me thinking, what have you been up to? I know you sin too. But according to this and the entire New Testament teaching on salvation by grace, we're still counted as righteous even though we're not. Jesus extends his sinlessness onto our sinfulness and considers us holy. Morally excellent. And he has called us. It's an important language here. He has granted to us. He has called us. He is the prime mover here. We have not earned it. But rather, he's bestowed all of this on us. He's called us into his glory and excellence. And when we consider where we were before Christ versus where we are now, where we're sharing in his glory and excellence, I mean, that calls for its own special hallelujah. Not only has he called us into glory and excellence, but he's granted to us precious and very great promises. Now, we could go on a fun little Easter egg hunt here and find all the promises in Scripture laid out for us. We ain't got that kind of time. In fact, as I was was thinking through this, I thought, I'm just going to refer back to, we we looked at this a number of times already, but this is just so impactful, I think. Back in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, not an exhaustive list of all the promises, to be sure, but this is a pretty good overview of some of the precious and very great promises that we receive. As followers of Christ, we're born again. We have a new hope. We have a new reason to live. We've been given an inheritance that is not dependent on local or global economies. An inheritance that is not dependent on the shrewdness or incompetence of money managers. An inheritance that is not dependent on the schemes of crypto managers. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and waiting for us. We're hearing all kinds of talk again now, mostly because there's an election cycle coming up, but how we're going to run out of social security not going to happen in heaven we're secure now i kind of think of these as like first order promises this is the big stuff right and just these alone would be worth living for christ but then we get these 
kind of second-order promises, all of these other things that are mentioned throughout Scripture that we almost take for granted. We don't think about all of these on a regular basis. Things like rest for the weary, unfailing love, wisdom and guidance from the Spirit. Our sins are forgiven when we confess. He'll never leave us or forsake us. I mean, this is just a partial list that could go on for quite some time. But he gives us these precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, this is an interesting phrase here. There are plenty of bad or just plain false teachers who would suggest that this verse means that we will become God. We'll be one with God. Somehow, osmotically just moved into this universal life force of God. Or that we'll have his exact nature. Or that we'll be, maybe not big G God, but little G gods. And that is not, repeat, that is not what Peter is suggesting here. God is God and we are not. Nor will we ever be God. But Peter's just told us that we have already been granted the glory and excellence of Christ. We've been granted the promises of Christ. So even as we struggle and toil on this earth as strangers and aliens, Jesus is already allowing us to share in his nature. He's sharing with us parts of himself. He's preparing us now for then. When we will get to spend eternity with him. So I found this helpful to kind of think about this describing something more like the process of being adopted. You know, that, that's a description that's used in Scripture when, when discussing the relationship between God and man. For the child who is adopted, he or she is chosen. They, they're welcomed in. They become part of the family. Through no effort on their own, really. There's no auditions for the role for the most part. But the adopted child gets to move into this, this nice house and they, they eat good food and they, they wear nice clothes and they find love and acceptance. They find a family and a name, even obtain an inheritance because they were chosen. This was all granted to them. And that's similar to the case here. God is the chooser. He is the initiator. And that's what we find here. He has called us into his glory and excellence. He has granted to us precious and great promises. He's granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. He allows us to partake in his nature. He's helping us become more like him so that we can share in God's glory as family, as worshipers. We're not blurring any line between us and God. But he's going to choose us and welcome us and allow us to share in his heaven, and his eternity like a family. So then by living lives that are set apart, by living lives that are geared towards holiness, by choosing to live for God's glory and will rather than for our own glory and will, we are becoming more Christ-like. 
we can reflect more of his glory. We can share in his moral and ethical excellence because we're transforming our own behaviors into his behaviors, his character. And that should be the goal of every Christian, to be increasing in Christ-likeness, reflecting his divine nature in all areas. But as we've already confirmed, we are none of those things on our own. We're not worthy of glory. We're not morally excellent. I mean, yeah, we're probably better than some people. That's not the standard. We certainly don't have a divine nature. Certainly according to God's definition. I mean, maybe your favorite guru or new age teacher will tell you you have a divine nature. You don't. The only way we can accomplish any of these things, the only way we can do any of these things is through the divine power that has been granted to us. By believing in our heart and confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, by committing our lives and lifestyles to his service and for his glory, we are made capable. We get a, a spiritual reboot. We get it's like a spiritual download that allows us to do all these things that Jesus calls to do. All the things that pertain to life and godliness to live as faithful followers of Christ. And then to receive the blessings of grace and peace in the process. So this spiritual overhaul makes us, or at least enables us, to be more Christ-like in every area of life. It transforms us to be more Christ-like. While at the same time, as we will see, it empowers and equips us to leave behind, to become removed from, to escape the corruption that is in the world. It empowers us to escape the pull of sinful desire. As a believer, this is us. As a believer on this earth, we're living with this tension, this pull. Different directions. Before we were adopted, before we were adopted, we were stuck solid right here. After accepting Christ, after confessing our sins, after confessing Jesus as Lord, the pull begins over this way. But it's constant tension. We were ruled and mastered by the pull of sinful desires. We were prone to sinfulness and selfishness. But after accepting Jesus as Lord, we started to move in the other direction. We, we started moving towards sinlessness and selflessness. I mean, we're never really sinless and selfless. But we're becoming more that way. And this movement from sinful desire to glory and excellence is only made possible by the grace of God that transforms us, that is transforming us. The grace that, that equips us to live, faith, to live as faithful followers of Christ. A life that is marked by just, we saw divine power, great promises. A life that allows us to share in the glory and excellence of the God who created us and the Savior who died for us. To the right is short-term pleasure, but long-term consequence. To the left is short-term suffering, maybe, but long-term glory and excellence. Great promises, a divine nature, and grace and peace multiplied for now and eternity. 
but we continue to have to make this choice. We continue to live with this tension as long as we are here, as long as we're strangers and aliens on this world, we feel this, we feel this tension. It's a choice we have to make every day. Which way are we going to lean? Which are we going to allow to have more influence in our life? We face up in all kinds of life situations, and we just need to be aware of the fact that there are eternal consequences to our decisions. So let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the chance to gather here today as your chosen people. Lord, we know that we're going to face struggle and, and, and trial and difficulty. Part of that is just living as humans in a fallen world. But part of the persecution, part of the suffering will come as a consequence of being followers of Christ. And Lord, that's why the verses like this, sections like this are so uh, encouraging, so affirming, because they tell us that you've given us all we need to persevere and endure. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. So I pray as we move throughout our various situations this next week, uh, family issues and work difficulties and then just life in general, Lord, I pray that you uh, give us wisdom and, and courage to know how to deal with those things, but you also cause us to remember that we are the beneficiaries of great promises. We are the beneficiaries of grace and peace. And Lord, those should help enable us to continue to be faithful followers of Christ. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall every now and again. But Lord, I pray that that pull towards your love, the pull towards your grace and mercy is stronger than the pull of the world. You've told us that it would be if we allow that to be the case. Lord, if we lean on you, lean towards your mercy, lean towards the gift of the Spirit that leads us into truth. Lord, we thank you for your patience and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.